Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello and welcome to another edition of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm here today with Dave Meyer, Vice President of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jamie. Super excited to be here. So I suspect most listeners know what Bigger Pockets is, but for those that don't, could you sort of do a brief overview of Bigger Pockets and then what your role is there? Absolutely. Yeah. BiggerPockets is the largest community of retail or, you know, small time real estate investors in the world. We have over two and a half million people who have signed up for BiggerPockets over our long history. And our goal is to help ordinary people find financial freedom and reach their financial goals through the power of real estate investing. And my role at BiggerPockets is the, as you said, vice president of data and analytics. And there's sort of two sides to that. The first is I handle the internal analytics, business intelligence, basically helping my colleagues make good decisions about operating the business by tracking website behavior and what's going on in the market. And then the second side of that is what we at Bigger Pockets call more market intelligence, which is understanding macroeconomic trends, what's going on in the housing market, rental markets, short-term rental markets to help our community of investors understand how to best optimize their performance and to make good decisions and informed decisions about their portfolios. Okay, so when Rob Abasala wants the new market to invest in, he's turning to you and you're gonna <laughs> you're giving him all those insights on where he should buy his next property, convert his long terms to short terms, like that's all coming from you. Well, this isn't this isn't um, just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but you all have much better short-term rental data than we have. I'll just be candid about that. We we I you know I have a short-term rental. I use your data, but uh, we do really try and help people at least understand macroeconomic trends, like what's driving the fundamentals in particular markets, and so we're good with that with short-term rentals as well. And then long-term uh, rental markets as uh, we have a lot of data, so. Um, yeah, we try and help people pick markets, but not just markets too, although that is kind of one of the fun ones. People always want to talk about that. But I think also matching strategies to markets too. I'm sure you're aware of this, Jamie, but like most markets in the US have what a strategy or multiple strategies that will work. Not all of them work for short-term rentals. Not all of them work for long-term rentals. You know, but so you're sort of trying to figure out, you know, who you are, what you want to invest in, and then matching you to the right strategies and markets. And the right strategy might not work in certain years and certain parts of the cycle and in certain markets. So it's the right strategy, the right market, and the right time, right? Absolutely. I've been investing in Denver for like 13 years, and I would love it if long-term rentals still worked in Denver, but they just don't anymore. <laughs> and so I need to look elsewhere if I want to do long-term rentals. If I want to do flip houses or do a Burr method, still probably work in Denver, but you know, I got to adjust. And short-term rentals are broadly illegal in Denver, so not a lot of opportunity there either. Exactly. Yeah. So I know... You recently released uh, your new year-end report, uh, The State of Real Estate Investing. I want to maybe start there. And maybe could you briefly describe the report and where listeners can find it? Sure. Yeah. So the report is my look back at 2023 and everything that's happened in the housing market to help contextualize 
the often confusing situation we find ourselves in. And then it also provides a look forward into 2024, which is comprised of some open-ended questions that we don't really know, just things that you should be thinking about as an investor, in addition to some advice and recommendations for what tactics are likely to work best across most markets for most people in the coming year. And you can find it. It's completely free. Um, it's at biggerpockets.com slash report 24. So just check that out if you want to see the full report. But hopefully we're going to get into some of the individual recommendations uh, during this episode. And something I want to do with the listeners, because if you Dave, remember back to like grade school, when you go to like discuss a book and like half the class has read it and half the class hasn't. Yes. <laughs> and like everyone gets way more out of the discussion if like everyone's on the same page. So I'm going to suggest that we just like pause for 10 minutes. Everyone go read the report and then we're going to come back and discuss it. That's such a good idea. Wow. No one has ever recommended that, Jamie. I, I'm going to do that in every podcast I go on to report that to uh, promote this now is recommend that. So yeah, go check it out. It's not super long. You should be able to read it quickly. All right, so we're gonna pause right here. All right, now we're back. We've all read the report. <laughs> uh, we're all experts on the housing market. So we, now maybe we can dig in a bit deeper. It's wildly been reported that the housing market is in recession or has been in recession maybe for like 18 months since rates started going up. Yet. You look at Case Shiller, you look at really any housing value indice, and housing values are actually going up. So maybe just start with how can the industry be in recession with home values going up? It's it's a great question. And it's one of the fundamental confusions about the housing market right now. And I think if you remember, if anyone has studied economics at all, Jamie, I'm sure you're aware. You know, when you talk, look at supply and demand and what's going on in any marketplace, there are two different variables that are impacted by supply and demand. There is price, which we talked about, and there's also quantity, which in the, in the housing market, we associate with home sales, the total amount of sales that go on in a particular year. And while the media loves to talk about prices, I do too, it's, it's kind of fun to talk about and it's important to investors. But I think the thing when you're referring to the housing market being in recession, if you do believe that, there is a lot of evidence of that based on just home sales volume, because they really have declined significantly since the pandemic. And the pandemic wasn't necessarily normal. Those were abnormally high years for home sales. But even if you look at pre-pandemic levels, home sales are much fewer than what they used to be. And that is primarily driven by lower demand. Because, you know, we see that mortgage rates have gone up. That's no secret. And that pulls a lot of demand on the market. People just can't afford it. But what happens at the same time in the housing market, or at least this time around, is that supply also dropped at the same time. And so I wish I could draw it. Oh, you might have seen it in the report, the, these supply and demand curves. But what we, it shows, we all saw it. Yeah. Yes, everyone <laughs> saw supply and demand curves. I know they're so exciting to look at. But you can see that basically when demand drops and when supply drops at the same time, if they're relatively proportionate declines, you see that prices can actually stay pretty stable, but volume or quantity declines. And that's exactly what's happening in the market. So we've seen much fewer home sales, but prices have remained stable. And so if you're just a casual homeowner, you probably aren't noticing this quote unquote recession so much. 
If you're a real estate agent or a loan officer, you're definitely noticing the housing market recession because the transactions that you rely on for your income have declined 30, 40, 50% since, since the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. So maybe I'm digging in a, a bit more on demand because I felt like in 2021, 2022, there were all these things impacting demand to the positive. Like we had the great migration, like everyone deciding they want to live in a different city. They've got their higher income sort of moving out of the, some of the big high income metro areas. You had an increase in housing formations. You had maybe even increased activity on from investors, large institutional or mid-sized investors. Has all that gone away on the demand <laughs> side or some aspects of it still there? Or is it just like, is all that gone? I don't think it's all gone. I think most of the demand tailwinds that, you know, support, uh, you know, support higher quantity in the market, support higher prices in the market are still there. They've moderated back to normal levels because during the pandemic, things got insane. But when you look at things like demographics, there's still a strong tailwind there. And to me, that is probably the second most important variable. Investors have backed off a little bit, but it's not like they're completely out of the market. Second, home demand is down a lot. I'm sure this is something you you look at probably in terms of short-term rentals, but you see second home demand, it went up, it almost doubled during the pandemic. Now it's just back to normal levels. So like it feels like a lot has deteriorated, but you have to remember that there was this era for two or three years where things were abnormally high. And so going back to normal feels like a significant slowdown. The one thing that I think is really sort of gone and is probably the most important variable in demand is affordability. And for those listening, affordability, when you're talking about the housing market, it's basically just how easily the average person in a given area can afford the average home in that area. And for years, that was really good. It was doing very well. And even during the pandemic, when prices were growing really, really fast, the first year or two in 2021, first half of 2022, affordability was still pretty good because mortgage rates were so low that it was offsetting these rapidly rising prices. But now, because prices haven't fallen, but mortgage rates have gone up, that makes it really difficult for the average person to afford a home in the United States. And so that is really, to me, what the primary reason demand is lower than pre-pandemic levels. And so when you talk about affordability, if I've got my investor hat on, and I'm still not sure if this is a real world or not, but word or not, but could I think about that as investability too, of like how the sort of key metrics look at it, new investments in, in single family homes? I think if you're looking at single family homes that are quote unquote stabilized, yes. So like if you think about it, stabilized basically means it's in good condition, like it's relatively close to its highest and best use. That is probably true because if you were just to go on the MLS on Zillow and look for a property in most markets in the United States, you're going to have a very difficult time finding cash flow, at least in a traditional long-term rental. Now, short-term rentals offer better cash flow potential, or at least revenue potential. And so there's a lot probably better dynamics yeah, in some still of those a tough, markets. Yeah, it's still a tough time right now to find cash flowing assets there as well. Yeah. Super hard because like, yeah. you know, rent and revenue went up a lot during the pandemic. But since mid-2022, the last year and a half, right, expenses have exploded, mostly in the terms of cost of debt. But 
we've seen rent and uh, you know ADR probably the gr uh, even if they haven't gone down, the growth rate has really decelerated, and so you're just seeing the last eighteen months expenses are growing way faster than revenue. That's going to make it less affordable and investing prospects not as good. And and that's for stabilized things. For you know we can get into this later, but most of the investors I know who are still doing well right now are doing sort of a quote unquote value add strategy. Mm -hmm which is where you buy something that's, you know, a little bit outdated, needs some love. You give it that love and you're able to boost the value. You're able to raise rents. You know, that that sort of strategy um, still seems to play decently well, even in this era of low affordability. So and sticking on affordability, how do you see affordability changing in 2024? Because there's home values, there's mortgage rates, there's incomes, there's all these factors that impact affordability. Are are, are any of them going to be looking good for 2024? <laughs> I'm hopeful that it will get a little bit better, but I'm not expecting any dramatic shifts. I wrote this report in the, you know, the beginning of November when rates were still in the high sevens. Since then, mm -hmm. uh, we're recording this in the middle of December now. Rates have dropped like 100 basis points. So that's great um, for, for affordability. <laughs> you know, you, it yeah. makes a big difference. You know, it sounds like it's not, but from seven and three quarters to six and three quarters is several hundred dollars a month on most payments. So that's really good. Now, I do think, you know, people are always like the Fed's now. Now we had this announcement from the Fed where it looks like they might cut rates. And people are sometimes thinking, oh, that means mortgage rates are going to fall much further. That's not necessarily true. It is possible. It is definitely a, a, a plausible scenario, but I think mm -hmm. we have to remember a few things here. First and foremost, the market, quote unquote, the market, like the mortgage rate market, prices in what they think the Fed is going to do. So the reason rates have fallen 100 basis points in the last couple of weeks is because the Fed made that announcement. They're not waiting around for the Fed to actually make the cut to alter their investing strategy. They're just doing it. And so those cuts are priced in. And so if they stick to their schedule, quote unquote, we'll probably have mortgage rates around here. I think the more important thing is that the Fed doesn't control mortgage rates, right? It is much more impacted by what is going on in the bond markets and mortgage-backed security markets. Yep. And those are certainly influenced by the Fed, but they're also influenced by a lot of other things like geopolitics, what bond yields are in Japan and Germany and in the Eurozone, or, you know, how much how frequent treasury auctions are quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. There's so many other things there. And so it's it's unclear. It's very hard to predict. Um, I think there's there's very good arguments to be made that bond yields were decline and there's reasonable arguments to be made that bond yields will go up. And so my like general feeling about affordability is that it's probably going to remain fairly flat. It might get a little bit better um, because I do think rates will probably stay. My guess is that it will stay in the sixes, but maybe in the lower sixes for most of next year. And so that will help. But I don't expect prices to decline that much if they would decrease at all. So it's not really going to change a huge amount, but I think psychologically it might help more just seeing like the end to the volatility in rates. If we could just get to a level where things stay consistent or start trending downwards, even if it's slowly, it might bring some life back to the market. One, I, I totally agree with all of that. Like, I think an expectation of mortgage rates decreasing somewhat, but I know there's people that think they can forecast 10 year treasuries or mortgage <laughs> rates, and then there's their ability to forecast 10 year treasuries and mortgage rates. And I don't think anyone has a record that could 
they could feel good about over the long term is just so volatile. Oh, yeah. The year I I actually nailed it this year, which I consider pretty good luck. I was like, I said last year, at the end of the year, it's going to be 6.7%. Pretty good. The year before, I missed it by like 250 basis points. So <laughs> if you took my average, it's terrible. So I, I totally agree with you. There's, it's just too complicated. Um, and I think hopefully, my hope though, is that we narrow the band, right? Like be, missing by 250 basis points in the normal year would be crazy because they just shouldn't move that much in a year. But <laughs> now we've been in this era where there's just huge swings. And so my hope is sort of what you're saying, pointing to is like they might just the, the volatility might decline and we'll have less craziness in the market, which would really help. But I mean, there's still 13 days left of the year. They could they could go up. Another <laughs> That's totally true. I should take a victory <laughs> lap. But yeah, it's that. <laughs> It's, uh, and yeah, if the year ended two weeks earlier, I would have been wrong by a pretty good margin. And one of the big uncertainties, and I think we just can't ignore, is just what's going to happen in the overall macro economy. Is the expectation going into 2023 was pretty high chance of recession. We broadly avoided that. And in the overall macro economy, there's still an elevated sense of recession that it could happen in 2024. But I think consensus among economists is that we might have a, a soft landing and maybe not go into recession. And and you follow the economists, I'm sure it's just as closely as I do. And maybe now that they're all agreeing that we're not going into recession means we're probably going to have one, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if we do go into recession, what does that mean for the housing market? Like, would you expect house prices to decline or would and supply demand sort of stay in in tandem. Would that mean demand for housing goes up? Would that mean supply for housing goes up if there's more delinquencies and more stress in the housing market? Like, just help me think about like how would the housing market change if we go into recession? I think this is one of the most interesting questions, and uh, there's a lot to unpack here. So, first of all. I feel like the word recession has like almost lost all of its meaning over the last couple of years because we, in my opinion, are in what other people have termed, and I'm stealing the term, like a rolling recession, yeah. which is like the way that the government defines recession is that a lot of industries have to decline all at once. Yeah. And that's not what's happening. What's happening is we're seeing one industry decline, then it will recover, then another one starts to decline, then we'll start to recover. And so we're sort of in this like, elongated period of economic uncertainty and discomfort. And yeah. so whether they call it a recession or not, you know, I can't say. But I do think if we really want to focus on what's going to drive the housing market, to me, it's really about inflation, of course, and, but also the labor market. And, you know, I think that's what would really change Fed policy and would also change the way the mortgage-backed securities and bond markets are behaving, at least right now. Just for people to understand, typically when the macroeconomic climate is looking more negative, that pushes down bond yields and takes mortgage rates down with them. And the reason for that is that during these periods, you know, a recession, let's say, these periods of economic uncertainty, people want to put their money in safe bets. And mm -hmm. generally, Speaking, people consider U.S. Treasuries, U.S. bonds, the most safe investment there is. And so people want to put their money in it. 
And when they put all their money there, the government's like, great, we have all these people who want to buy our bonds. They want to lend us money. We can pay them a lower interest rate. And so that's why it pushes down bond yields and bond yields, mortgage rates, very closely correlated. Won't get into that. But that so so to, for that reason, it seems relatively likely that if there is further declines in the labor market and the, the risk of recession increases, demand for housing could go up. And I know that seems confusing because people, I think, often associate recession right now with the 2008 recession, which is was a housing-led recession. But that is not normally the case. Like If you look at four of the last six recessions, housing prices grew. So it's not unprecedented to see housing prices increase during, during a recession. It really depends on like where the recession hits, what parts of the economy are hit. Because if it's, you know, let's say people who work in tech are disproportionately hit, which might very well be the case right now, then it could damage the housing market because those are tend to be wealthy people who are homeowners. Mm -hmm. If it hits the, you know, sort of lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum worse, that could probably hit rents, not a lot, but might the housing market might go up because people with the means to buy a house can still have means. So if I had to guess, my opinion is that we'll see the housing market, the labor market uh, weaken a little bit next year and we'll see increased demand in the housing market. So the million dollar question is your question is, will supply come along with it? I don't really know. I hope so, because that would make a much healthier housing market. But I think there we're in this very unprecedented time with supply in the housing market. And it's kind of hard to guess what might happen. Yeah. So and I don't want to put you in the camps, but it, I get the sense that you're clearly not in sort of the housing doomer camp of like and we and see even a modest increase in the unemployment rate or job losses that could cause just a, a collapse in the housing market equivalent to what we saw in 2008. Yeah, no, I, I've been strong against the the housing market doom and gloom for the last several years. I, I We could talk about that for hours, but I think there's a couple of just main things here. Obviously, it's well documented, but lending practices, credit standards are, are much better. I think the, the second thing here is if you just look at long term inventory trends, they've been trending downward for decades. It's not just due to the pandemic. And so supply is lower during a time where demographics will give a tailwind to to demand even without interest rates being super low. And so to me, those two things sort of put a floor on the housing market. Could they decline two, four, five percent next year? Sure. Is it going to decline 15 percent? I think that's very unlikely unless there's another like black swan event, you know, in the, some geopolitical thing that none of us can, you know, predict or, you know, pandemic, you know, stuff like that. And the third thing that's, I think, insulating the housing market is there's a lot of money on the sideline, like investors who aren't going to let the, the bottom fall out like what happened last time. Banks during 2008 took huge losses on these houses that they did not need to, to take losses on. If they had worked with home buyers, if they had worked with investors earlier during that during the financial crisis, the, the bottoming of the housing market could have come a lot earlier. And I think banks have really learned their lesson in that they don't need to foreclose. There's ways to, you know, forbearance seems to have worked really well. You know, there are hedge funds who will buy these, buy up packages. There are individual investors who want to get into the market. And so 
I have a hard time seeing it. I could be wrong, but I've never, at least over the last few years and looking forward a year or two, I just don't see double digit declines as a likely outcome. So, so maybe that's a good pivot into thinking about investing in 2024 uh, because there, as you said, a lot of people maybe sitting on the sidelines that want to get in. Uh, they're looking at and single family home investments either for bring and and using those investments as either a long term or short term rental. And as we said, there's different strategies that might work in different markets. But just as people are sort of sitting here today. What are, and I know you laid out and we've all read now 10 <laughs> uh, tactics for investing. Right. What are sort of the maybe two or three that y- you think are most important or maybe most relevant for the audience here that's maybe and has a higher propensity than most to invest in a short-term rental uh, over the next year ahead? Yeah. So I, I think there are a couple of tactics that will work and I'll just um, list a couple that I, I'm interested in. So the first is, house hacking. I think that's always a popular strategy. And if you're not familiar, that's basically just owner-occupied property investing. And so you can buy a two-unit, three-unit, four-unit, rent out one, uh, or live in one, excuse me, rent out the other, or buy a single family, live in a bedroom and rent it out. Mm -hmm. And that's always great. And I actually, I know a lot of investors who pair this strategy with short-term rentals. One, because it's often a way to be compliant with any regulations, because if it's your primary residence, you're often able to lease out additional units. It also allows you to pair your own property with a high revenue opportunity like short-term rentals. And if you wanted to boost your short-term rental income by, let's say, cleaning the house yourself or doing self-management, you're literally next door. So that makes it quite easy. But the reason I think at 2024, it's All those reasons have existed for a while. But the reason 2024, I think, is particularly good is two new mortgage rules that are making it easier for smaller time investors to do this type of strategy. The first is that now through certain types of loan products, um, through government backed uh, entities, you can now put much less than less than 20 percent down on uh up to four units so if you want to buy duplex triplex or quadplex you can now put five or ten percent down and so that really helps certain people be able to afford that the second one that i think is really cool for short-term rental investors is now adus which it stands for accessory dwelling units which is like if you have a you know a an apartment above your garage or a, a shed in your backyard that is compliant to have people occupy it. Those now, the rental income that you can generate from them goes towards your debt to income ratio when you apply for a mortgage. So previously you may have had this you know, apartment that's generating, let's say $1,000 a month, but that didn't count towards your income when you're trying to get a mortgage, which is kind of silly. And so Mm -hmm. they've changed this now. And so you can count that towards your debt to income ratio. And that should help more people qualify for loans on these types of properties, which frankly are very good for short-term rental investments, particularly this this type of house hacking strategy. So that's sort of the first one. Um, I'm not sure if you you look into that at all, Jamie, but I think that's a really good way for people to start investing in short-term rentals. Yeah, no, that's a it's a great one, um, especially with the uh, legislation that's come in, where in a lot of markets, especially uh, mountain markets, coastal uh, out west, like ADUs, like in house hacking, are one of the number one ways that you can get in, and actually some of the only ways you can still invest in certain markets. 
Yes, that that totally for for a regulation. And t- the other thing that I think it's exciting about it is a lot of governments, local governments are incentivizing or at least opening the gates to building more ADUs. Because mm-hmm. this is one of the ways that I think a lot of municipalities are looking at increasing housing supplies, this idea of, quote unquote, upzoning, which housing is basically, density. yes, <laughs> increasing density, right? And yeah. so they're allowing single families to build these ADUs. And so I think you'll see more of them created. And therefore, if you want to invest, there might be more options for you in the near future. So, so that's one. The second uh, tactic that I would have never recommended to people before the last two year or two is looking at new construction. And that's because normally there's a pretty big premium for buying new construction. It's like buying a new car, right? You know, you're going to pay for the new car smell and to drive it off the lot. Same thing goes with houses. And normally that premium is not really worth it for investors. You know, like you don't command that much more rent or that much more ADR for short-term rental investors for having something that's brand new. As long as it's like in good condition, you probably get similar rents. Uh, And so normally it's not worth it. But right now, builders are offering really good incentives. And so the the most common one is a rate buy down. So you're seeing, I I got quoted, I think I for a duplex in Florida, I was looking at it. I didn't actually wind up doing it for other reasons, but the the builder was willing to buy down my rate to 4.75 which is crazy for something new. And so the the price point for the house may still be higher than existing homes. But when you look at the monthly payment, you actually might be paying less to get something brand new than you would for something that's comparable and might be 20 years old. And so it's a very interesting, intriguing option, especially if you're buying in a place that might appreciate over the next, you know, five, 10 years. Um, So I think that's a, a, a very interesting thing. And the other reason, obviously, there's a financial reason, but the other one is right now, normally new construction makes up about 10 to 12 percent of the total home sales in a market. So it's like one out of 10, right? Now it's 30 percent. And so if you want to buy right now, a lot of your options are going to be new construction because there's just more of it on the market relative to existing homes. And so that combined with the financial incentive makes it an intriguing option for next year. Well, that's great. And a question I had here to sort of note when I was reading through the multifamily section of the report is rental arbitrage and short-term rentals is is a strategy. It's maybe one of the more risky strategies given that you're taking a long-term lease and trying to rent it out on a short-term basis. But during the past few years, there was very little incentive for multifamily operators, multifamily building, let's say larger buildings to rent out to someone that's going to sh- and use it as a short-term rental because Vacancies were two or three percent, and they were able to rent it out themselves. And now, it and the forecast that you show there, like and the historical vacancy data, looks like vacancies have been going up there now, at or above pre-pandemic levels, and maybe will keep going up given all the new deliveries happening in the multifamily sector. So maybe and more opportunity for those that want to arbitrage to find multifamily buildings that are willing to, given that and vacancies are significantly higher than they were in the past. That's a good point. I honestly hadn't thought about that, but that 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 makes a lot of sense. And I will say, so on my, I have a podcast called On the Market, and we had, um, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name, but he was like one of the heads of operations at Airbnb. 
Uh, he came on the show a couple weeks ago and he was talking about a new program they're working on where they're working directly with multifamily operators for places that you can rent. It's as a primary residence. So it's not necessarily, nope. ar it's not arbitrage. But like, again, if you want to get into it, their Airbnb is working with landlords who will basically pre-approve you to short-term rental your place. There are usually limits for how many nights you can do it per year. But it's again, if it's a, if it's something you want to start doing or if you travel a lot for work and you want to offset your housing costs, this is another like you said, it's, a, it's something that I think multifamily operators are starting to embrace um, and, and that trend might continue. Yeah. Was it Jesse Stein that you had on? Yes. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So he's their uh, head of real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, super and, interesting program. Very clever. Yeah. No, I mean, it's their, yeah, the, the program and a great way to unlock supply and a great way for existing renters to earn extra income. Like, and a lot of people now with the flexibility they have from work, like they're just away from home more often. And if you're a renter and want to rent out your place and have someone take care of it for you, like just have your building rented out and cover mo most or a lot of your rent during that month is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and especially definitely. that more and more buildings are looking into offering that sort of uh, opportunity. It really is sort of like house hacking for short term rentals, which you can do either way. But, you know, I think house hacking is so beneficial for long term rentals or for in general, because you don't need to cash flow. All you need is for it to offset or reduce your cost of living for it to be a positive financial benefit to you. And that's sort of sort of like the same thing here, right? Like you might still pay rent. You probably will still pay rent, even if you rent out your place 90 days a, a, a year, but you might get your rent down by 50%, you know, or more. <laughs> I don't know. I'm making up that number, but yeah. you might significantly reduce your cost of living, which is as good as making money, right? You know, like money saved, money earned, same thing. So like, I think it's, uh, it's, it's really beneficial um, and could be a really good stepping stone for people. Yeah. So, and those were, were, great sort of tactics and actually useful tactics as we think about 2024. Other question I had for you is just around and bigger pockets and the sort of network you guys have in general. We have a lot of new investors that listen to our podcast, people that are sort of just getting in. What what advice would you have for them, especially in terms of like utilizing platforms like bigger pockets of like to get started? And I love the forums. I spend a lot of time in the bigger pockets forums on sort of learning different aspects of real estate that maybe I, I don't necessarily fully understand. But given that you're you've been around there for a while, you probably know the platform better for most. What what are some tips that you have for people actually leveraging what you could get out of bigger pockets? Absolutely. So I think that the main thing that I find so encouraging about bigger pockets is that if you're going into real estate investing, it isn't rocket science and people have done pretty much everything you're going to encounter before and you can learn from them. <laughs> like uh -huh. when I first started, I didn't even know about bigger pockets. And I was investing and I was just making mistake after mistake and I eventually stumbled upon bigger pockets and just found out that like there's this whole community of people who can help you and it's a very like friendly community I find. Like you would think people are going to be very competitive uh, with each other in real estate, but I've not found that personally. I think it's quite collaborative. And so I think no matter where you are, if you're early scaling, there are people who are willing to help, especially in the forums. And so I think that's really important. I think the other thing that we're really working on right now, 
as evidenced by this report, and it seems like you guys are too, is just trying to give people more market data. I think for a long time, if you look at the equities markets, buying stocks, there's so much data and information that investors can use to make decisions. In real estate, up until recently, it really hasn't been that way. So that's why you know your, your show, Jamie, and what we try and do at Bigger Pockets too is so important because I think it takes a lot of the guesswork and a lot of the fear out of it when you just can see in dollars and cents and graphs and objective information, like what is happening, how much money you can make. Like it's not this like mysterious thing. There, there is, there is real information that can help you. And so that's what we really have been focusing on over the last couple of years at Bigger Pockets. We also have great resources for finding agents, finding lenders that are completely free. And a lot of the tools at BiggerPockets are free. Um, and so highly encourage you to, to come check it out and join the community. I've learned so much from it. I'm very proud to be a member of the team, but also proud to be a member of the community and participate in it. Yeah, so that's great. And, and I really suggest to our listeners that you sort of dig in and sign up for a free account, start going through the forums, like seeing the type of things, a lot of the free resources are, are great as well. I, I have t- last two questions for you. And the, the final question is going to be around where to find you. But the, the leading one is, I, I'd like to ask this of fellow data nerds. And I, I, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> Please, this, uh, these are the questions I love most. Yeah. So I mean, what is the one metric you're sort of following I mean, over the next uh, few months? Because and I know you probably see hundreds of different metrics that you're following. There's inventories, there's median prices, there's all the different price indices. I'm sure there's even I'm proprietary metrics that you guys have in bigger pockets sort of seeing activity out there. So, but what's the sort of one number that you, you think is most important that, that you're following? I'm really curious that it's hard to pick. It's like, uh-huh. you know, that's an order. I love kids. them all. But I think <laughs> if I had to pick one that I would recommend people watch for next year is something called new listings. And okay. it's a little bit different than inventory. They're both related. Um, but inventory is a measure of how many properties are for sale at a given time. And it's really interesting because it measures both supply and demand, right? It's how many people list their properties and how quickly those properties are purchased and removed from the market. And that's really sort of like one of the most important things you can watch in real estate. So I won't give that answer. I think instead I would look at new listings, which is how many people are just listing their property for sale. Because I we are in this era where we're kind of stuck. And the only way we're going to really get out of that is if people start to list their property more. Because as we discussed, I think there's a decent chance demand goes up next year. And if supply doesn't go up with it, if new listings doesn't go up with it, we might see another rapid increase in, in housing prices, which I know people find this confusing for an investor, but I don't think is a good thing. I, would, I want to see a much more stable, healthy market. And so my hope is that if demand starts to go up, new listings also start to go up. So that's the one I'll be really keeping an eye on. Where, where do you follow that metric? Oh, there's plenty of places to do it. I actually find that um, Redfin has really good data. They have a really yep. nice like integrated embedded Tableau experience where... Yeah. Even if you don't know a lot about data, you can click around and, and really find this kind of information, not just on a national basis, but in your local market as well. So I highly recommend checking that out. Yeah, that's that's where I, I, I followed as well. And then final question I said, where, where can people find you? Where can they sort of keep up with what Dave's saying? Sure. So I should 
plug, I have a new book coming out in January. Uh, it's called Start With Strategy. It's all about how to pick and create a personalized real estate strategy for yourself. So if you, you know, there's so many different ways to invest. There's so many different markets. And so I've created a framework that helps you say like, here's my personal situation, my goals, my financial picture, my risk tolerance, and here mm -hmm. then matches sort of the right strategies and tactics to you. So you can find that at biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. Um, and from bigger pockets there, you can find any of the articles I write and all that stuff. And if you want to connect with me directly, Instagram is always good where I'm at the data deli. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. And I hope everyone learned a lot about the housing market and how it could evolve over 2024. Thanks a lot, Jamie. I appreciate you having me.